I'm not going to waste your time tonight because your lecture is very well known to most of you, I'm sure. I get to ask Sir Philip to start straight away and talk to us. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really rather terrified about trying to give this lecture because it's an enormous canvas to try and paint on. And when I sort of looked into what I had to tackle in talking about the RFC and RNAS, it seemed to me that if I dealt with the subject in the normal way, I would find myself either being obscure or talking for very much too long. So I decided that I would try and give you a picture of my own impressions of the people who mainly influenced the creation and the development of the RFC and the RNAS. Uh, you will probably fault me on some of my critiques of the great men, whom you have probably known yourselves. But they are, the views I give you are mine, the result of my personal experiences with these people. But before I start on the living and the more recently dead, I think we've got to go back, so far as Britain is concerned, to the early days of aviation. Well, ignoring King Bladud, who made himself a pair of wings and jumped off a tower and broke both his legs as a result, he was trying to emulate Icarus, you know, the fellow who first encountered the heat barrier, which melted his wings. But the man who was really important, I think, in any study of aviation in Britain is Sir George Cayley. Now, Sir George was a Yorkshire squire. He lived in the early 1700s, but he seemed to have had a most remarkable grasp of aerodynamics and of the possibilities of flight, uh, as you will probably know. He, he built the first really effective glider, and he ordered his gardener to take post in it and glide from the top of a hill down into a valley below. And the gardener rather naturally uh, objected and said that he hadn't been engaged for that purpose. And the curious thing is that history doesn't relate whether the gardener actually did the job, but I think he must have, otherwise he would have probably lost his job. But Cayley had the whole theory of uh, aerodynamics very clearly in his mind. When you think that it's over 200 years ago, it is remarkable that that, that country squire had that much learning. And not only that, but he produced a, a rough design for an oil engine. And if there had been an engineer capable of translating that oil engine into fact, Britain would have been flying in the late 1700s and not in the very late, 19, well, rather late for us, 1900s. So the story goes back quite a long way. There were others, of course, as you, we certainly would know. Pilcher, for example great man, Hiram Maxim, with his tethered steam aeroplane, people of that sort, Lanc um, what do I mean, Lancaster, yes, um, all those great men who lived in the, in the, what you might call the interim period before flying became an actual fact. So far as the services are concerned, I'm sorry to have to tell the sailors who, if there are any here today, that it was the army that got in early on the flying racket, because it was in 1878 that after the experiences of certain uh, balloon efforts during the Napoleonic Wars and also the activities of the balloon people in beleaguered Paris when the Prussians were all round Paris in 1872, whereby a fairly large number of VIPs escaped the rigors of the siege. My great-uncle was there, and he uh, didn't like his straight diet of sawdust bread and grilled rats and things of that kind, so um, you can understand the desire of these VIPs to remove themselves quickly. Well, they did it by balloon. Well, this alerted the war office of the day, and they finally decided in 1878 to produce this, what they call the balloon equipment store, 
which started at Woolwich. Now, that was the birth of aviation, whatever you like to call it, uh, uncontrolled to start with and later controlled in this country. And the man who was principally <coughs> responsible for the development of ballooning in this country was a certain Captain Templar, Royal Engineers. Now, he must have been a very great man, because not only was he keen on ballooning, but he believed in motorized transports. And his great method of trying to persuade the war office that there was something in this business of motorized transport was to take a traction engine, a steam traction engine, and drive it through the streets of Farnborough, belching flames and smoke and steam all over the place. He was a man with a very large moustache. It must have been a great sight to see him at the wheel of this traction engine with his moustache like rather uh, Sir Gerald Navarro's blowing in the breeze. But he, he was a man of vision, and he did a tremendous lot for ballooning in, in, um, in this country. And then some years later, four years later, the store moved down to Chatham, and there the engineers took over. And from that moment on, uh, you may take it that the uh, Royal Engineers were responsible for the development of ballooning and later of kiting. When I was cadet at um, Woolwich, I saw the probably the last of the men lifting kites being actually used in an exercise. From Chatham, the balloons moved to Aldershot. It was then called the Balloon Factory. And uh, uh, Colonel, he was then Colonel Templer, was the superintendent. And you first get the use of the word superintendent in the history of the development of the uh, army flying. In 1905, the balloons moved to Farnborough, where they stayed for a very long time. And Colonel Kappa was put in command. Uh, he wasn't entirely in charge. Uh, you might say that he was the operational commander. And uh, the uh, Templar was still the superintendent in, in, in the factory side of the thing, in the making of the balloons. Uh, Kappa used the balloons. And indeed, they were used on several occasions. They were used in, in the Egyptian wars. They were used in South Africa. And uh, they, they did a certain amount of quite useful work there in... Uh, uh, reconnaissance over the hill, and uh, artillery observation. And then we come to the time when the whole system, military system in this country, was revolutionized by one man, Mr. Haldane. Now, Haldane was a very great man. He had vision beyond most people. And he completely reorganized the army, which had been flagging and lagging through the years of peace and after the Boer War. And to him we owe the territorial army, which exists still today, and which certainly has saved us on a number of occasions. Now, Haldane selected a very interesting personality to go to the new organization in Farnborough. Because, once again, the balloon section, uh, the balloon company, whatever it calls it, the um, balloon factory, uh, was <coughs> reorganized. And Mervyn O'Gorman was made the superintendent in Kappa's place. Now, Mervyn O'Gorman was a civilian. He was also an Irishman. And he had really no military rank whatsoever. But to enable him to cope with the, the soldiers at Farnborough, he was given the rank of colonel. Now, O.G. was a remarkable man, and certainly the Royal Flying Corps owed him a very great deal, a very great deal. He was a brash, violent, intolerant Irishman. They can be, you know. And he was also a very good organizer and something of an engineer. And under him, the new organization which had been created, which was then called the Royal Aircraft Factory, grew and grew. It split into two, the ballooning side separated off, and the aeroplane side was created. 
The man in charge of the engine side was Mr. Green. I don't think he had anything to do with the building of the green engine, which Shorts used, but he was at the factory at that time, as I will remember. Now, there was an infant aviation industry growing up in this country. Sopwith, Hawkers, Rowe, Rolls-Royce were beginning to take an interest, and above all, the Shorts down at East Church. Now, the factory cut across the bowels of all these people. Here was, again, uh, a nationalized industry, subsidized with government funds, uh, interfering with the normal production of uh, private industry, and therefore to be cursed and anathematized at every possible occasion. Charles Gray, another great factor in aviation in this country, he was the editor of the aeroplane, and every week he produced the most scathing articles about the factory. He loathed the factory. He could only believe in private industry. And if any mistake was ever made, Charles Gray would pick it up and follow it up and produce these polemics, which delighted uh, quite a lot of people, but which certainly didn't improve the relationship of the factory with the Royal Flying Corps as it was to be. There are one or two other men who were in at the beginning who were certainly should be mentioned. One is Major Sir Alexander Bannerman. Uh, he was, uh, you might say, the, the first CEO of the Air Battalion. He was a, a gentleman, uh, not in any way capable of coping with a, a Gorman. On one occasion, when he couldn't get any aeroplanes out of the factory, and private industry didn't seem to be turning his way, he sent his sister to have dinner with Haldane, who was then Lord Haldane. And the sister said next to Haldane, and said, look, my brother can't get any uh, aeroplanes. And within a week, there were aeroplanes. So you see, there's something to be said for um, a little quiet dinner party influence. And that allowed the training of the officers of the air battalion to proceed. Without those aeroplanes produced in that way, it would have, uh, well, it wouldn't have died, but it would have gone very much more slowly. Now, at that time, something was happening down at East Church. Uh, really, at uh, Shellness, wasn't it, Andy? Uh, you would know. Um, Shorts, two brothers, uh, good engineers, had decided that they were going to build aeroplanes. They would have been fired by the example of the Wrights, and they thought they could do at least as well, if not better. They started the RNAS, that there's no question whatsoever, because up to that time there's a complete blank. The Admiralty had taken no interest, had no designs on the air at all. And it wasn't until Schultz uh, started this flying school down at um, on, on the Isle of Sheppey at East Church, that things began to move at all on the naval side. You may fault me when you say that the Admiralty were thinking of airships. I agree. But it was about the same time that I'm speaking of now, when Short started up at East Church, that Captain Barry Souter was sent by the Admiralty up to Baron Furness to supervise the construction of the ill-fated Mayfly. The Admiralty had become very interested in the successes of the Zeppelins, and they had decided that they'd got to have an airship, and a rigid airship at that, too. And so they gave the contract to Vickers, who had singularly little information on the subject, to build a rigid airship. And Murray Souter, who was I regard, in many respects, as the father of the RNAS, was sent up there with uh, a, 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 a chief petty officer to go through the usual routine of watching the building of a ship and bringing it into commission. Well, you will remember that the unfortunate ship came out once out of her shed. She did her mooring tests all right, was put back into the shed. Next time she came out, she broke her back, and that was the end of that. About the same time, Commander Oliver Swan 
was missing about in the same dock area with an Avro biplane on floats. He, I think, can be said to be the first of the float plane experts. Then, of course, Schultz really developed the whole thing and produced the seaplanes that did such excellent service during the 1418 war. Well, there you have the people who, in my opinion, started the RNAS. You've got Zeppelin himself indicating that it was possible to have a rigid airship, influencing the, ad influencing the admiralty to build a rigid airship. The admiralty taking it on without due knowledge, without adequate uh, information on the subject, Vickers asked to do something which at that time was not a very practical proposition and disaster following. But a little private enterprise, two brothers, and two men, one a rich man called McLean, who bought the land, which subsequently became the East Church Airfield, and a Mr. Coben, who had learned to fly in France. Those two got naval aviation on aircraft going at East Church and had a very great influence indeed on its development and on its success. There were four pirates, young chaps, who were the beginners there, who, exacting permission from the Admiralty, and as far as I know, at their own charges, although McLean didn't charge them for the cost of the flying, that I do know, Samson, Longmore, Gerard, and Gregory. They went there, and they did their flying there, and they are, in my opinion, the next wreck in the creators of the Royal Naval Air Service. What were they like? Sammy, I wonder how many of you remember him. A very Captain Kettle, red beard and all, bright blue eyes, ghastly manners, determined at all times to get what he wanted, brave as a lion. Arthur Longmore, the ever young, to this day he doesn't look more than about 40. A great chap, good pilot, a lot of grey matter. I believe it's true that um, he got into trouble with the Admiralty about doing something and was sent back to sea for about a year, but finally came back to flying, which cost him a bit of seniority, but which didn't really lose him any advantage. Gerard I have met, but I don't remember very much about him. He was uh, a solid, sober citizen, a Marine, and a good chap. Gregory I never knew. But those four were the starters. And the next man who took a hand with the RNAS was Winston Churchill. Now he had become First Lord of the Admiralty in, I think it was 1911. And he decided, he got to hear of these activities at East Church, and he decided that he should take some interest. And not only did he take interest, but he learned to fly with Jack Seddon, who was another of the early ones, as his teacher. He was a perishing pilot, of course. Most dangerous. But he did it, and he got to know something about the air. And it was his authority and his enthusiasm which undoubtedly got the RNAS off to a tremendous start, whereby it caught up, very nearly caught up, with the delay in the, uh, which had happened to it in the years which had been lost, because the Admiralty had, had not um, t taken sufficient interest. Moving across the other side again, we still have Bannerman in charge of the Air Battalion. And then again, Haldane, no longer Minister of War, takes a hand in the game. He, I think I'm right in saying that he was a, a member of the Committee of Imperial Defense. He was then Lord Haldane. And he had been thinking of this problem of aviation, and he recommended the setting up of a subcommittee of the CID to go into the matter of the coordination of the naval and military sides of aviation. This subcommittee was set up, and it, it uh, uh, was set up in, in three months, it did the job.
Its report was approved in April 1912, and on the 13th of that month, the Royal Warrant forming the Royal Flying Corps Naval and Military Wings was issued. Now, it is fair to say that the Admiralty never really accepted the recommendations of that committee. They always had a, what's that, a reservation about the whole thing. They didn't want to be organized by the War Office in any way. They didn't even want to be equal with them. They wanted to continue in their own way. However, they paid lip service to this uh, Royal Warrant uh, for a period of years. But they went along in their own way, in two significant points, on two significant points. When the Royal Flying Corps was formed, Major General David Henderson, who would distinguish himself very much uh, in the South African War and um, was regarded as a first-class staff officer, uh, was appointed as the Director of Military Training in the War Office. And he took the Royal Flying Corps Military and Naval Wings under his charge. Now, see what an army training does to a chap. He was an authority on reconnaissance. He'd written a book on reconnaissance. Looking at an airplane, he said to, he thought, said to himself, Mark you, I was devoted to David Henderson. He was the most delightful, pleasant fellow that ever walked. And he was a very good officer and a good soldier too. But he was a soldier. He was not an airman. He had learned to fly, by the way. He got, got his ticket. He was thinking in terms of reconnaissance. You could only imagine flying over an enemy force at a speed where you literally could count the men on the ground or in the trenches. And he laid it down, and that affected the, the development of the Royal Aircraft Factory, that there should be no airplane with an engine in it more powerful than would give it a speed of a 100 miles an hour in the still air. He thought that was fast enough. The Admiralty, on the other hand, now fully alive to the advantages of the air, and thinking farther and faster than the War Office, were looking to the whole problem of fighting in the air, and in particular, to offensive operations in the air. So they wanted bigger and faster and, and finer aeroplanes than had been thought necessary for the Army. And so they developed, as, I, uh, as I've indicated, more powerful engines, a aircraft that later on, in the course of development, became faster. Uh, and you can't say that the short seaplanes were very fast, because they weren't. But uh, anyway, th th there was the intention on the naval side. Th th it was they, they, they took an altogether broader view of the thing than the Army did. The Army was looking at it just like that down to a pair of field glasses at a, at a hole in the ground. And I remember very clearly on one occasion when uh, uh, it was a day when um, there was a strong westerly wind and I had to fly along a line of trenches into the wind. I decided to climb as high as I could, which I thought was a reasonable precaution. And my, uh, my um, observer, when we landed, was absolutely furious. He said, how was it? I couldn't count the men in the trenches. I said, no, of course you couldn't. I was up at 7,000 and Johnny glad to be there. That was a sort of angle of approach at that time. So you see there the effect of the higher direction on both sides of the house. Now, what about the squadron commanders? Here again, you find a considerable difference between the RFC and the RNAS. We were an older lot altogether. And that stems from the fact that the, the chaps I call the starters, uh, Samson, Longmore, Gerard and Gregory, were all youngish chaps. But they came to be the seniors in the RNAs. Whereas in the RFC, we started off with a lot of older men. They were C.J. Burke, the Royal Irish, uh, Raleigh, Higgins from the Gunners, Rapopin, forget his regiment now, and Maitland, in charge of airships. They were all considerably older than the, the four starters on the RNAS side. Now the effect of that, of course, was that the 
the standard of discipline in the RFC was definitely of a more rigid type than it was in the RNAS. You put it quite bluntly, the RNAS were a lot of pirates and we were guardy trained. And that was, the, that was the difference between the two services. Whether it made for excellence on our side in the RFC or on the naval side, I don't know. It probably made life a little easier in the RFC than it was in the RNAS. I must tell you a story about that. I came back from France in October, 14 to form a new squadron. I was given a few, a few days leave, and um, in the course of which I met one of these RNAS squadron commanders. Not anyone I've named so far. And he said, uh, <clears throat> would you like to come down to Hendon to see uh, the place that I'm commanding, defending London? I said, I'd be delighted. So we climbed into his very nice Lancia car with two very pretty girls in the back seat. And we drove down to Hendon, arrived outside the, squ the squadron office. The driver blew his horn. Out from the office came a chief petty officer with a lot of papers, which my guide signed and said, is, is that all, CPO? Yes, sir, that's all. We turned around and went back to London. It was a rather nice day's work. But I don't think you would have found that in the RFC at that time, because it, 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 it really couldn't have happened under the, under the people we had in charge, those that I've named. C.J. Burke was a most rigid uh, disciplinarian. He was also a very bad pilot. I believe his score was uh, 14 undercarriages and 24 props. But, uh, <laughs> and again, you see there, you've got uh, the, the rigidity of the army mind. I remember very clearly at St. Quentin during the retreat. It was about uh, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Clouds were about 200 feet. It was drizzling hard. And we were told to evacuate our airfield. Um, C.J. Burke was in charge. And he said we were to go off at, at five-minute intervals. Well, there were about 30 aircraft on the field. Five times 30 is 150, which is two hours and a half, roughly. It was then getting on for dark. So, apart from the first few that could get off in daylight, the rest of us were going to be marooned there for the night because we couldn't get off. Then, of course, appeared another man, John Salmond. He simply said, get off, blast you, at once. And so we got off, and we all got away. But there was a difference in character of the people, you see. One, a rigid mind, uh, conditioned to uh, what you might call peacetime aviation. And the other man, who really uh, already understood, well, he'd done South Africa, so he knew something about it, um, what war was and what was needed at the time. And that was John Salmon. He took the place of Brookham, Brookham, when we went overseas, because Brookham was required to become an adjutant um, uh, general. And uh, so my squadron uh, lost Brookham and gained Salmon. And uh, I think we were lucky. Not that I've, I loved my Brookham, and he would have been equally good. But we didn't, uh, what I mean is the squadron didn't lose anything by losing Brookham. It, uh, it, it evened itself out. On the other side, as I say, there were these other squadron commanders, Samson, Sedent, Longmore, Risk, Gregory, Gordon, and Usman. And they were all younger chaps, and they didn't have the same grip on their people. Although the petty officers were probably just as good as the guardy sergeants and sergeant majors that we had to discipline the men, I don't think there's any doubt at all about it. At that time, the criticism made by Lord Jellicoe when he wrote that picked midshipmen from the Grand Fleet are sent to the Royal Naval Air Service where they are overpaid and underworked and spoiled. That is what Jellicoe thought about the thing. Not true, of course, entirely, but an element of truth in it. So you get two rather very, very different organizations growing up parallel in time of war. Now, the RFC went to war in the beginning of August 1914, well, no, no, about the middle of August 1914. And in charge was David Henderson, and under him was Sykes. Two more different men you could hardly imagine.
One was a, a, a good soldier, a gentle man in every respect. Sykes was a cold, efficient staff officer who never could have got the uh, willing cooperation of people who served under him. He was too cold. He had no spark of that uh, which makes for leadership, which Henderson certainly had. I don't doubt it that the early operations of the Royal Flying Corps were very much affected by the ca different characters of those two men. The RNS, on the other hand, had a, a fairly straightforward job. Uh, they hadn't got to go over to France. Their, their chief job was uh, coastal reconnaissance. And when that flagged, of course, Samson got his armored cars and went over to Dunkirk to help the Belgian army to fight the Germans. Well, that was a very gallant act, and it was a very must have been a most interesting and delightful experience for Samson. But I don't think it had a very great influence on the course of the war. But Sammy was always like that. He was piratical. He was centrifugal in his ideas. A fantastic man. A great loss when he died rather young. Because I think he had shaken us up very much in this last war, in this last war. And then one other thing happened at the outbreak of war, which was of considerable significance. I don't know how many people know that Lord Kitchener had probably a clearer perception of the use of aircraft at that time than anybody else, because he ordered, uh, it, it must have been in the autumn of 1914, he ordered Trenchard, who was then in charge of the uh, administrative wing, which was endeavoring to build up from nothing at all the reinforcements that the uh, RFC would require. Uh, um, in, in France. Margaret, we'd been stripped down to the bone in this country. There had been neither the time nor the opportunity nor indeed the will to provide an adequate reserve. Just before the war there had been this special reserve of pilots who, taken from the flying schools, uh, with practically no military experience whatsoever, were bundled into squadrons where several of them, to my knowledge, broke their necks very, very quickly indeed, through lack of experience. And so there was really nothing behind the uh, facade that went to France in August 1914. And it was Trenchard's job. He had come from the Central Flying School, where he'd been assistant commandant, and he'd been put into the administrative wing to make bricks without straw. And wonderfully he did it too. And he had behind him Kitchener. Now, here was an odd little piece of uh, personal diplomacy. Kitchener didn't like Sykes. Didn't like him at all. He was a great admirer of Trenchard. So he made Trenchard a brevet lieutenant colonel. Sykes was only a temporary lieutenant colonel. And by the curious operation of the army hierarchy, a brevet lieutenant colonel took precedence over a temporary lieutenant colonel. So Trenchard was always senior to Sykes and uh, Kitchener had seen that it was so. Funny, you know, how those sort of things can really have a tremendous influence on big events. Imagine if the, 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 the solemn process of seniority had gone on and Sykes had been made uh, CNC, um, RFC, whatever, GOC, RFC, uh, instead of uh, Trenchard, as Trenchard was later. I don't think we'd have had the same success. In fact, I'm sure we wouldn't. He would never have launched that tremendous offensive that Trenchard did when he finally took over in France. He wasn't the man to do it. He was the administrator. He was the first-class staff officer. And more credit to him for that because it's a good thing to be. But he wasn't the commander, and he never would have been the commander. And so it was a lucky thing that a person who has been very often decried for his qualities or lack of them, Kitchener, had picked on the right chap to do the job for the RFC. On the naval side, of course, there were the, um, the usual troubles. First of all, the scattering of the, the, for of the forces that existed. 
in places like Port Said or Dar es Salaam or down the coast, anywhere where there was a naval operation going on, uh, a couple of British seaplanes would be dragged out there with uh, a supporting uh, merchant ship, and there was no cohesion, there was no coherence. The whole effort was scattered over a very wide front. And, of course, piracy was rampant. Sammy at, uh, at Suez was, was, was absolutely fantastic. He had his ship, the Ben McCree, and uh, the, there were two others as well, I forget their names, and he conducted his own war in the Eastern Mediterranean with complete satisfaction to himself. But what the influence was on the, on, on the war, I cannot imagine. All that happened in the end, of course, is that he, uh, he got Ben McCree sunk at Castellarizzo, uh, bad luck and caught that kind of thing, but there was the end of a very handy little ship, and uh, a lot of awkward things happened in consequence. But there was a, a better time coming for the RNAs, because they formed, at last, a wing, a solid wing, at St. Paul in Dunkirk, and they got a proper job to do which was to harry the Bosch along the coast of Belgium and Holland. No, not Holland. Oh, the coast of Belgium. Sorry, I'm a war ahead. Um, and they did it extremely well from there. Uh, there was... Uh, I, I saw them working at that time, because I had a wing up on the coast as well. And they, they'd got a definite objective. They were doing something positive, And it made an enormous difference to their ability to, to be effective. And then, of course, there came the time when the RFC had to beg for help from the RNAs. When we were in a very bad way in 17, and the RNAs did most effectively come to our help, I had one uh, camel squadron under me, number 10, uh, a magnificent lot of chaps. I was delighted to have them with me. But again, you see, there was the conflict of the two separate services, uh, one going its own way and not necessarily utilizing the national resources to the best advantage, because what they had, they didn't really need. What they had in surplus, we needed very badly. And so you then get the argument for the combined service starting up in a big way. I suppose, really, you've got to... to Make, be quite certain in your own mind as to the part Trenchard played in forming the RFC and the RAF. It's an involved story, rather complicated, and full of contradictions. But I would like to approach it rather more slowly by referring to other personalities. Now, General Haig, Field Marshal Haig, was commanding in France at the time I'm thinking of when Trenchard had been there as the, CA, as the uh, uh, GOC and C in France, had done a wonderful job, but he'd been called back to England as CAS, and Salmond was then commanding out there. Now, at that time, the further development had taken place in the RNAS, with this idea that they'd had all along. The Admiralty established a uh, number three wing at Luxeuil, a strategic bombing wing. They intended to carry the war into Germany by air. So you there had something quite outside the conspectus of the commander-in-chief uh, British army in France. Here was this little odd thing down in a corner of France without any particular direction from him. Uh, depending from London, and as such, a query in his mind. And in particular, of course, it would have it must have annoyed Haig because another curious development in the minds of the people that we were dealing with in that time was this: the Germans never made the mistake of scattering their strength all along the front. Whenever they had a job to do, either in the offensive or the defensive, they concentrated the, uh, let's, let's call it the Luftwaffe, the, uh, the, the GAF, the German Air Force, uh, at the decisive point and at the decisive time. Now, he had under him a lot of very forceful army commanders, 
Plummer, Rawlinson, the little wild Irishman, Fifth Army, all wanted their own private air forces. They couldn't do without their private air forces. They had to have them. They were not going to give them up to anybody else. So the RFC was weak all along the line. And that went for quite a long time. I would say that it lasted right up to the end of the war, really, until perhaps uh, when they, the Germans broke through on the, on the Somme, and then again up at, um, in, in, in um, Belgium, when dire necessity made it essential to concentrate everything that possible, possible that could be concentrated. But in principle, the army commanders demanded their own particular pound of flesh. And so we were never strong enough anywhere to really be decisive. Trenchard had never been able to defeat them over that. I'm not sure that he didn't sympathize really with them about it. And that's one of the contradictions, I think, in his character. He was all for the offensive, for pushing and pushing and killing and killing and hitting and hitting, clearing the sky so that the reconnaissance aircraft could do their job without interference. But he never managed to get a really adequate concentration of fighters, I think, some people may disagree with me, to make quite certain that the uh, reconnaissance and bombing would go ahead uh, without serious interruption. And I maintain, and I maintain it against all comers, that the basic trouble was the army commanders who insisted on having their own private air forces. Now, while all this was going on, and I say, there was, there, you must remember the Luxor was being built up. The press lords in London were putting their heads together because they were, I think, genuinely horrified at the losses of our infantry on the Somme. 50,000 casualties in one day. And you will remember the Trenchard had gone back to London to be chief of the air staff. And they got at him to say to him, now look, uh, you believe wholeheartedly in our power. We suggest that you call for the withdrawal of all air forces in France, that you form a strategic bombing force in this country, and we are now going to attack Germany where it'll hurt her most. Not going to bother about the army. They must come home. They must leave the French to stew in their own juice. Well, you can, you can imagine how very popular in the trained military circles such a suggestion was. And in any, any case, uh, Trenchard was dead against it. And uh, there, you, as you may remember, there was that row uh, when Rodomir was, was uh, a temporary minister for air. Do I mean Rodomir? Yes, I do mean Rodomir. And finally, the whole thing blew up. And uh, Trenchard went back to France to command an independent air force. Now, that's the most remarkable contradiction, I think. He turned, uh, rightly, absolutely rightly, turned down the, the grand design. And you would have thought he would have had nothing more to do with anything of that kind. Not at all. He goes out to where Luxoil had made the beginning of the independent air force and creates an independent air force which does exactly what Luxoil was intended to do and which was at the back of the press lord's binds. Although they'd gone far too far, I think. It's a queer thought, all that. Meanwhile, of course, the Smuts Committee had been at work. You will probably recollect that it was in the autumn of 1917 that the discrepancies between the RNAS and the RFC had become so great. The RNAS was accused of wasting, and of course the whole thing had been brought to a head by the demand from the RFC to the RNAS for help in the difficulties of 1917. And so the Smuts Committee was set up and uh, made his report, and in due course that was accepted by the government, and on the 1st of April 1918, the Royal Air Force came into being. So through those four tangled and difficult years, on the, RFC, on the Army side, you've got certain personalities that are outstanding. First of all, in the what I might call elementary degree, David Henderson with Sykes as his staff officer. Then you've got the changeover 
from that uh, thing, first of all, Henderson, as you may remember, <coughs> was offered a division, which he took, and Sykes, for a moment, looked like taking charge of the RFC. That Kitchener wouldn't have, so Henderson was pulled back, and he was taken and put in the war office, and by that time, Trenchard had reached the point where he could be appointed GOC. He'd, be, he'd been a, a wing commander for a while, and then he was picked out and made the GOC. From that moment, as I've described it, the um, RFC took a new shape and a new heart altogether. It had been previously been largely on the defensive. From the moment Trenchard took over, it went over to the offensive, to its great advantage and to its great loss. Those are the men, I think, who in the later stages made that part of the RAF that was RFC. The RNAS picture doesn't emerge half so clearly. You've got the f people I call the four lictors. Scarlet, Swan, Lamb, and Vivian. They emerged really effectively, I think, about the, the middle of the war. They were appointed really by the Admiralty to bring discipline to the RNAS, which I think they did. Of those four, I knew three. No, I knew them all pretty well. Dan Scarlett, Punch, to his friends, was a great character. He had imagination, drive, enthusiasm, and a sense of humor. Oliver Swan was much more of the staff officer type, I would call him. Uh, you may remember he became Air Member of Personnel at one time. Len, father of a great son, was what I would call a very good regular naval officer. Not sparkling, not outstanding, but most capable, and again a good disciplinarian. Stuffy Vivian, wonderful character. Harsh, determined, domineering, but just the man for the job. They were the four lictors that I think necessarily licked the RNAs into shape at that time. But you don't get any really outstanding personality in the RNAs, except the young ones. And they came to it later. They emerged towards the end of the war. I'm talking to people like Bumble. Nobody to compare with Trenchard. They weren't in the same street at all. He was unique, in my mind. Now, some years ago, I wrote a profile of the old man, who I knew pretty well. I had great difficulty in composing it, because Lady Trenchard, he was then dead. Lady Trenchard uh, had different views to what I had. But there are several things to be remembered about Trenchard, apart from his outstanding personality. First of all, was that he was very badly wounded in the South African War. He had only one really sound lung. He was also almost myopic. He, he, he had only one really good eye. And yet, in spite of that, he rode the crester, he played polo, and he learned to fly. Uh, there is a theory that he was quite a good pilot. Actually, there's a file in the war office which contains the statement this officer is an admirable administrator, but he's a very bad pilot and should never be put in charge of an aeroplane. Those are the facts. And thankful to say that the, the old man never tr uh, trusted, tr tried his luck too hard. He just learned to f do his straights and his circuits and then, then gave up. He was also a very thoughtful man. Besides being uh, intolerant of uh, learning. He, he, he never was very successful at, at school. Um, he tried for the Navy and was turned down on bad spelling. He tried, he tried for, I think, um, uh, Sandhurst, was turned down there, and finally got into the army through the back door, the militia. But he always was capable of conducting a discussion as a young man, I'm not talking about in his later days, uh, with intelligence and effectiveness. The story that all his papers were written for him by Philip Game, his staff officer, I think is totally untrue. Because when he retired and went into civil life, I have seen papers written that could only have been written by him that are first class. They're lucid, 
clear in the discussion and come to a, a sound conclusion. We always used to say that it, it was quite extraordinary that he, he always came to a right conclusion by entirely the wrong method. But when he got it on and paid, then you would see that the man's real mind. He couldn't talk, of, uh, well certainly when I knew him in later days, not when he was a young man, he was hopeless trying to tell you something, to ask you to do something. You'd stand in front of him and listen to what he'd got to say, and then you went away and tried to interpret it afterwards. And if you were wise, you got hold of Sergeant Bates, his shorthand typist, who seemed to have a miraculous ability to illuminate the, the phrases that had been thrown at our heads. But he was very good on paper, and there's no doubt that when he had that tremendous battle on against the other two chiefs of staff, during what I call the Battle of Whitehall, he won through by sheer ability and determination. He had two formative opponents against him, David Beattie, and, um, and they had a whole army of people attacking him. He had a very good friend in Philip Game, and there were also a certain number of staff officers of the RAF who weren't too bad at argument. But it is interesting to think that the, when the uh, Imperial Defence College was formed, which was supposed to be a panacea for all the intertribal jealousies of the three services, that we should get a collection of staff officers born and bred there, so to speak, who would e speak each other's language and understand each other, and that all this intertribal jealousy would disappear. I was the first RAF teacher there. I remember some years later, Maurice Hankey saying to me, as Sir Maurice Hankey was the, the uh, Committee of Imperial Defence, that he was deeply disappointed with the uh, IDC because so far as he could tell, all that it had done was to produce new and better arguments in the Battle of Whitehall. And I denied it with oaths. I said, you will find that when it comes to the crunch, as uh, Churchill calls it, the people who have been trained together at the IDC will understand each other and they will work together. And it is certainly my experience that was so during the war. Now, again, Trenchard had a good deal to do with the formation of the IDC. A great deal to do with the formation of the IDC. And wherever you go, and you look back in history, you look back in time, on the formative period, on the development period, and of course particularly in the years between the wars when he did so much to create the RAF into what it became. You see the pattern of Trenchard's mind, difficult to comprehend in the first instance, but ultimately coming out as a light, a gleaming light of wisdom, foresight, and character. And now we're back again where we started, with the RAF, which is no longer a complete service, with the RNAs, and with missiles treading on our tails, and Polaris submarines trying to take over the role of the RAF. But those men that I mentioned, they couldn't have foreseen this. This was a development which was unknown. But what they did to form a darn good service is something which I shall always remember with pride and affection. And if I've forgotten anybody that I should have remembered, I apologize. I've spoken mainly of the people whom I've met and personally served under, and so I may have forgotten somebody. Of those I've loved most, I think Brooke Poppen and John Salmon, who is still with us. Great men, and there are others are almost equally great. And they all worked for a common purpose, to make the RFC and the RNAS and the RAF the first service, and not the third service. Thank you so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you must have been fascinated as I was by the way in which he's taken these historical characters, put clothes on them, blown spirit into them, so to speak, and made them all come alive. Many of these men I met myself, and I was pleased to learn more about them. Many I had not met and only knew by reputation. You referred to the Brook Popham, one of the nicest men I ever had anything to do with. Trenchard, I met under unhappy, unhappy circumstances. Nevertheless, 
he was, as you might say, a great man. Perhaps I might be, in view of the great respect which he's held, I might tell you how I met him. Sir Septon Branker took me one day, he said, you must meet Trenchard. This was after the First War. So he took me into Trenchard. Now Trenchard had one great desire, and that was to sign every form that dealt with any promotion in the RAF. And he, had, he was sitting at a big desk, he had a sergeant on one side and a sergeant on the other. And this man on his right had a large quantity of, of papers to be signed. And he pushed one in, Trenchard signed it, and it went along, and then another man, the other man blotted it and put it on the other side. Branker said, I bought Naylor in because he's interested in research. So Trenchard said, how's research getting on? So I spoke for about two minutes. Well, he said, I'm very busy. Thank you very much. And Sir Septon Branker took me out. <laughs> Nevertheless, I respected him. I think he was a great man. And so are so many of the others. Now, I mustn't keep on talking about what I remember. I must give you all an opportunity to get up and ask questions. We don't mind asking a few questions, I'm sure. Tell us, how it was mixed and um, the pupils, the instructors were a mixed lot of uh, uh, naval and, and, and uh, soldiers, and the pupils were from all, all sides. And that worked Tom Bianca Mal for about a year. But then, you see, the pull of East Church was very strong indeed. You've got the shorts sitting there on the seaplanes, you've got the, uh, the whole establishment of the training organization there, and it wasn't long before the, that pull drew the, the the naval element out of the CFS, although uh, Godfrey Payne remained in, in command and the instructors were the same. Gerard was there, by the way. And um, But there was this unit at East Church, which was doing exactly the same job, that is, training young sailors to fly. And that was the first vociferous uh, movement that uh, eventuated in July 1914 in the complete breakaway of the RNS. Uh, the the uh, Central Flying School then became a purely army organization, and East Church, at any rate for a while, uh, Chigford and other places grew up beside, was the Central Flying School of the RNS. Uh, what was the foundation of Cranwell? In 1917, it was quite a big base, both uh, uh, lighter than air and heavier than air. When was it actually founded, and how did it come to grow so big before the Royal Air Force? An RNAS station. Uh, it began um, as, as, a, as, a, as a flying training station uh, under naval control. You're right, there, there, there was lighter than air there. Um, Oh dear, and I shall, I shall have to delve into this to get you with the whole answer. But let me put it quite briefly. It started as a, a naval air service station. Uh, when the RAF were formed, it doubled up and became an RAF station. Because it was RNAS up till that moment. Uh, the, the, uh, the RFC, as far as I know, never took over Cranwell until 1918. And then it, it then became a cadet training place. And from that it moved on to being uh, partly apprentice, partly uh, cadet training, uh, as, as an RAF station. I don't know whether there's any Cranwell boy here who could correct me on that, but I think that's about right. Where one did one's uh, first fly, first solo, and up to about 12, 14 hours flying. And then we all went to Cranwell where we took our final uh, examinations and uh, our final graduation. There we flew uh, on our original uh, station, we flew Morris Farmans and Kurtzett. And uh, then when we went to Cranwell, uh, we flew the BD, and uh, there was a list of bullets, one or two rather advanced types of that sort. And there we took our final exams and graduated. But all pupils from the other schools, which were Redcar, East Church, Eastbourne, Vendome in France, and Chingford, and uh, one other that I've forgotten. All people went to Cranwell to graduate. <laughs> <laughs> the RFC was there. We got our instructors uh, 
to uh, Upavon, but the fellows went from the flying training schools direct to overseas. I remember very well passing a fellow who had done seven hours flying through my hands to France and hearing of his death a fortnight later. They did 50 hours in 1918. Even then they hadn't learned much about flying. They taught all over again. Now I ask you to comment on the craft of General Slump in the battle of Whitehall. Well, as, as you know, he uh, he produced the Smuts Report and he, he and he pushed it through. At the end of the war, he went back to South Africa, but he kept uh, bobbing up again in London from time to time. And I don't think there's any doubt about it that uh, Trenchard uh, uh, took his advice again and again and again uh, uh, whenever whenever he could get hold of him. Of that, I'm quite sure. But the. Uh, so far as I know, the old man didn't take any open part in the what I call the Battle of Whitehall. I don't think so. You see, I was, I was in the amnesty part of the time, and then I was at the IDC as a teacher, when the battle was still in, in, in full blast, and uh, when I went to Andover, it was, it was still going on then. And I don't know that it's ever really stopped, has it? You've uh, told us some very amusing and nostalgic anecdotes. Haven't you got one about uh, Septon Branca? Oh, yes, well, it's um, uh, Piper, Sergeant Piper, uh, Sergeant Pilot, um, in charge of one of the first of the B-2Cs. And Branca came barging down from the war office, as he was wont to do, and demanding to fly this aeroplane. Uh, you will remember one of his dictum, dicta, was... Any bloody fool can fly an aeroplane. So, um, Piper said, well, so you've got to be rather careful with this machine. You know, she's very stable. And, uh, you must put her down and do a proper three-point landing. Uh, you can't let her drop. Because if you do, she'll, she'll fall out of your hand and, uh, we'll do this kind of thing. And Banker was very casual, said, yes, sir. So Piper got into the front seat. And, uh, off they went. And, uh, Banker came into land. And he went down the, uh, straight like a kangaroo. A series of what the French call uh, tonneau. And uh, Piper, who valued this aeroplane, got out at the end of the run and came along to Branca and said, Why did you do, sir, just exactly what I told you not to do? Branca's immediate reply was, You're being insolent. You're under arrest. <laughs> well, Piper was rather disturbed about that, but um, presently that, uh, that very red face became a little less red. The shining eyeglass uh, took a more mellow appearance, and Branker apologized. Not as much as I know about Ashmore. One very long-sighted eye, and one very short-sighted eye. And that's what made flying so difficult for him. Flying was difficult for him. And that's why we all resented cordially his remark that any bloody fool could fly. <laughs> Well, you can fly, but it, it takes a pilot to land. I wonder whether you can tell me why Fred sent for Colonel Gorman on one occasion to France. Colonel Gorman went over there, the tale he often told, and Trenchard said, you've got to make me an aeroplane in which I can have a man sitting in the tail with a gun. And Trenchard said, you go and do that. And the Gorman said, it cannot be done. So Trenchard said, get out. That's the tale that a Gorman used to tell. Very likely. I, I knew him pretty well. He was uh, quite a friend of mine. But um, I never heard that one. After all, we've had the airplanes with guns in tails for quite a long time now, haven't we? <laughs> we hadn't got them then. Well, they weren't really big enough to get a man down the tail. Well, it showed that Bob had the right idea anyhow. Oh, yes. I mean, after all, I, was, I, I went and sat in the back seat of a Bristol fighter the other day, and uh, one was singularly defenseless in that position. In spite of having a gun, even two guns, they're liable to shoot your tail off. Well, I bored you into silence. That's a great success, anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not really. We've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Captain Pritchard, you going to help? Ask some questions? What way of airship did you all come? I had Lakeman's name uh, and I was specifically going to talk a little bit uh, about that. And particularly about his... Um, fantastic parachute descent at the time, he got out at 10,000 feet, free fall from there. And that was, for that time, a very remarkable effort. 
Now, Maitland, of course, was one of the enthusiasts for um, for the airship, and Dennis Burney, too, who was responsible for the R-100, which crossed the Atlantic twice, I think. And then, then of course, there was the R-34. We had a certain amount of uh, number, well, two or three, but very successful ridges. Of course, the R-101 was bedeviled by politics and things of that kind, and uh, that, that, that one went, went wrong. Oh, you're, you're thinking of people like Fletcher, who's still very much alive, and um, all the other airship people, who did a good job, but it was not a very, not a very successful type of aircraft. Not until we get uh, negative uh, gravity shall we do much with airships. I'm told that comes in 50 years' time. Well, Splash was the, uh, another interesting character. Uh, his claim to fame was, of course, the establishment of LADA, London Air Defence um, Headquarters, um, which he did extremely well. And it's uh, interesting to realise that the the counter method, the equivalent of the counter method of displaying aircraft on a board, was devised by him. I feel I ought to have mentioned that in in, in the talk that uh, that that was uh, Splash Ashmore's great. Uh, Claim to fame that he did establish something which is still going on in much the same way in um, in plotting of air defence uh, problems. Make it down, please. <laughs> <laughs>